Okay, so we are on Exodus 38, which, as you know, that's near the end of Exodus, um, 40 chapters in this book. Um, Next week, uh, we will uh, have a different Sunday evening service. Remember that we will have the youth pastor candidate come next Sunday night, and he will be uh, delivering the message. It will be at our normal time. At 6 o'clock in the sanctuary, though. Uh, And then the following week uh, is Memorial Day weekend, and we don't have Sunday evening service. So so our next planned study of Exodus would be um, June 4th. uh, And we plan to finish up Exodus by June 18th. So that would be... um, more than a year and a half in Exodus, but but uh, but not two. So, uh, as you know, this is the last part of Exodus that is about the tabernacle. The last uh, sixteen chapters, thirteen of those are about the tabernacle, and and as we've talked about a number of times, it's it's much of it is twice through the same the same material. Um, and so this is Exodus 38. Most of it is very similar to Exodus 27. And so, you know, again, why would it be that way? Well, it's because God wants it that way. Um, you know, probably because it emphasizes that, that the Moses and the people of Israel did exactly as the Lord commanded, and that's why so much of the language is even repeated um, in that, and so, like we we do, as we're covering these large blocks towards the end of Exodus, of full chapters most of the time, uh, we'll have a short review. Um, and so, this is about uh, the last couple of weeks have been about construction of the ark, or I mean, of the tabernacle and the ark, and the th- other things that go into the tabernacle. So, tabernacle looks something like this, probably. Uh, remember, it's a portable sanctuary, so it's meant to be moved. Um, and on the inside, it was divided into two parts. Here's the layout of that, the Holy of Holies um, on your left, on the west side, um, and the holy place on the east side. Um, and in, unless you were a priest, you didn't enter even into the holy place. So the tabernacle isn't like we think of a church, for example, where you would all gather there. When they say they go to the tabernacle or they go to the temple, they're going to the outer part, to the courtyard of that. So the priest would go in there uh, daily, more than daily, um, to perform their duties. And then uh, in the Holy of Holies, though, no one went in uh, unless you were Moses or unless you were the high priest, and if you were the high priest, you only entered one time per year, uh, and that is on the Day of Atonement. And so uh, we were actually on that last week. Um, when we started, we had the tent like this with nothing in it, and then last week we entered the things that go into the Tabernacle. So we have the, we had the ark, the ark of the covenant, or the ark of the testimony, goes by either of those names, and 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 also um, the uh, a few other names for the ark, 
Um, then there's the table, which was for bread. There's the lampstand, the menorah. Um, and then there was the altar of incense. And so this is the basic layout of the inside of the tabernacle. Uh, you notice that the only thing um, in Exodus listed as going into the Holy of Holies is, is the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, um, in which was uh, the covenant document, the Ten Commandments. But the, the, the Ark is the most important thing in there because of that and also because it's the place where God says, there I will meet you. So to Moses, he will meet with Moses there. So last week, we were covering those four things, and we spent most of our time on the Ark, most of our time on the Ark of the Covenant, which probably looked something like this. Um, it's made of wood. It's two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, um, and a couple cubits and one cubit and a half high as well. Um, the description has, it has feet, it has poles that, that are used to carry it. Um, it's gold-plated, it's wood. Uh, but when, as we talked about it, we narrowed our discussion even further to the covering that's on top of the ark. Um, the mercy seat, as most of our translations um, say it. In verse 6, then, of, of Exodus 30. Seven began this way, and he made a mercy seat of pure gold. And so we ask this question, what is the mercy seat? And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. So the same as the measurements of the ark. And he made two cherubim of gold, and he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. So you can see the cherub, cherubim are separate from, but attached to, completely attached to the mercy seat. And he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat, and their wings with their faces to one another toward the mercy seat um, were the faces of the cherubim. So mercy seat is the translation we all, I think probably almost everybody grew up with and, and, and is most familiar with, um, but, but a better translation is, is certainly something like atonement cover that the NIV has, or a toning cover like the newest version of the New American Standard has, or just simply cover. So if you want to keep using the term mercy seat, that, that's fine. Just know that it involves atonement, that it involves sacrifice, that it involves appeasing God by sacrifice. Um, it involves reconciliation with God carrying our sins away. So atonement covers all of those things. Um, and just keep that in mind, because atonement points to sacrifice. And sacri atonement points to Christ. Sacrifice points to Christ. Um, and sacrifice of Christ is what it takes to make us right with God. So, so just remember that. 
when you, when you read the term mercy seat, it's really pointing to the atonement of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice to make us right with God, to make us acceptable to God, and to make us able to confidently approach his throne. So on to Exodus 38. And just like Exodus 37 started with the most important thing inside the tabernacle, Exodus 38 begins with the most important thing outside the tabernacle, in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then Exodus 38 will also tell us about the courtyard itself. So uh, build the tent. They built the tent, then they built the things, or at least in order that it's recorded, built the things that go in the tent, and they built the what goes outside the tent next. Um, and so uh, coming into tonight, we have this shrunk down the tabernacle from the previous slide so that we could fit the courtyard in there. So we have the tabernacle itself, the things that go inside it, and tonight we'll end up with this, the courtyard, and the whole complex basically, and two things that are outside of the tabernacle but in the courtyard. The first is the bronze altar or the altar of burnt offering as it's called in Exodus 38, uh, and then the bronze basin, some translations would say laver, bronze laver, um, but bronze basin. Okay, so the ESV, since we most of the time use the ESV in this church, has, has this chapter broken out down into four parts. The Hebrew Bible actually breaks it down into five, which is, it's a better it's a better break. That extra break makes sense. But, but we'll stick with the ESV for simplicity. And here are the ESV's breaks. Now, the ESV starts this way. The making of the altar of burnt offering. So I just dropped the making off. The altar of burnt offering goes from verses 1 to 7. And then the bronze basin, just one verse. Uh, verse 8. Uh, the courtyard. Uh, I might say court. I'm not sure in ESV, but verses 9 to 20, and then the materials for the tabernacle, that's right out of the ESV, 21 to, to 31. So, so like we did last week, uh, we, we will spend our most of our time in the first part, just like last week, the most important thing in the courtyard. Last week, it was the most important thing in the tabernacle, but we'll, tabernacle, but we'll cover most of it at the end. So, We'll start out by reading through each of these sections. The first one, I'm just going to read through it without comment. Um, the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one, we'll make some comments as we go back, go through, and then we'll come back at the end to the altar of burnt offering uh, and spend most of our time there. So, the altar of burnt offering, also called the bronze um, altar. So if you haven't opened your Bible to Exodus 38, please do that now, and we will read through um, this section. And before we start, as you go through this chapter and, and you see a reference, you use the pronoun he, um, it is not referring to Moses or to God. It is re referring to Bezalel, the, the chief craftsman, 
he's not called that, but the chief craftsman of the tabernacle and its furnishings. So, verses 1 through 7, just going to read straight through those. He made the altar a burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. He made the horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were one piece with it, and and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the firepans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. And he cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. Okay, and now the bronze basin. So we'll just make a few comments as we go through. Not many here. It's one verse. The bronze basin was the place. It's a, it's a, it's a big bowl, basically, um, with water in it that the priests would use after they were at the altar and before that they would go into the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. So, as they were doing their sacrifice work, uh, work with they would come and they would wash with this in this basin. He made the basin of bronze in its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So first of all, made it from the mirrors. They didn't have mirrors as we think of mirrors. Uh, Mirrors in those days uh, in the Middle East were made of metal. Um, They were made of things like bronze and, and made very shiny, molten metal that they shined they were they were handheld, like you would see, with a with a handle on them. Um, they were heavy and very expensive. And guess where they were made? Egypt. So the men, the women who ministered at the entrance, um, it is not known exactly what they did. However, it definitely would not have been doing priest duties. Uh, priest duties were reserved for men only, and not only men, but only men of the tribe of Levi, and not only men of the tribe of Levi, but but descendants of Aaron, um, and not only men who were descendants of Aaron, but men between 20 and 50 years old. Um, after you were 50, you could assist, but you couldn't be the person responsible for doing priestly duties. And not all of the men between 20 and 50 who were Aaron's descendants could, could work as priests, because if they had any 
um, cert any of certain defects or any of certain injuries, they were not permitted to serve as priests. So it was very specific about who could serve uh, as priests. So uh, it's not, it wouldn't have been women, it wouldn't have been most men. Um, it would have been a small percentage of men. So again, here are the locations of the altar um, of burnt offering and the bronze basin. Um, and now we'll move on to what is the courtyard, and you could probably you know, term it something like a fence um, around it. So the courtyard... And he made the court for the south side, the hangings of the court, they were like curtains, were a fine twisted linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. Now, I don't know, I don't think it's pronounced fillets. I think that's something different. And spelled different, but but I think it's pronounced fillets. But I, but they're just some kind of connector. So notice that the the south side it says south side of the tabernacle. And if you've been here a lot, you know that the tabernacle was always oriented the same direction. So the south was always the south. Uh, the east was always the entrance, um, and. Of course, this is a, is a rectangle, as you would expect. So when we get to the north side, it should be the same size. In the north side, there were hangings of 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. So identical to the south side. And for the west side half as long. Um, for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. So half as, half as long, half as, many, half as many pillars, probably half as many connectors um, to those. And then the east side, this is the entrance side. It's going to be 50 cubits, 75 feet roughly. Um, and um, for it'll be the same size as the west, but because it's the entrance, it's, the description is different. In fact, it's, it's quite a few verses of description of this entrance. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits in their three pillars and their three bases. So 15 and 15 cubits, that's 30. And all the hangings around the court were of fine twisted linen and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were silver. The overlaying of their capitals, the tops of the posts, um, was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with 
silver, and the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It was 20 cubits long, so 15 on each side, 20 in the middle. It adds up to 50. And the five cubits high, seven and a half feet roughly, in its breadth corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver, and all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. So if you've been here the whole time, these materials are still valuable, but they're a step down from what was used in the tabernacle. Here you have silver and bronze rather than gold and silver. And you have fine twisted linen. Um, and, in, and at the entrance, at the, at the gate that you come in, it, it's got embroidered like part of the um, tabernacle. But the tabernacle had cherubim, for example, in part of it, woven into it. So a little, a step down, still very valuable, very rare and expensive uh, materials being used, but one step down from um, the tabernacle. So uh, we could break this. This part is the part that's broken into two parts in the in the Hebrew Bible, the materials for the tabernacle. Uh, but we'll just go through that. And these are the records, or if you have something besides the ESV, you might have these are the. Number of things New American Standard has. Um, these are the amounts of materials NIV has. Th- this word here that's used, that's translated records in the ESV, is, has a wide, wide, wide range of meaning. Uh, it can mean to visit. can mean to punish. It mean, can mean to muster your troops. It can mean to pay attention to. It can mean to miss. It has a wide variety of meanings, and so it's very difficult to translate um, sometimes. It's a very common, common word. Um, and, and these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony. And they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, Uri, um, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that Yahweh commanded Moses. And with him was Oholiav, the son of Ahisamach, the tribe of Dan, an engraver, and a designer, and an embroiderer in blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen. All the gold that was used for the work In all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. So that doesn't mean a lot to us. Um, A talent was about 75 to 80 pounds. There were about 3,000 shekels in a talent. So there's the reason for listing it in both talents and shekels. And a shekel was somewhere around 0.4 ounce. So, um, 3,000 of those, 
0.4 ounces, roughly, would make up a talent. And the silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. So this is the temple that was, or the tax that was commanded in Exodus chapter 30, that everybody paid the same amount. All the men, 20 and above, paid the same amount. It didn't matter how much money you had. Everybody paid the same amount. The rest of the things for the tabernacle were given by as people's hearts moved them. Um, So this one tax, um, it was part of a census that was collected, um, 603,550 men from 20 years old and up. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents. A talent, a base. So again, the base is about um, 75 or, or 80 pounds or so. They probably weren't shaped by like these concrete blocks that we had out there on our signs, or handicap signs that blow over in the wind. I think they're, I think they're about 60 pounds, but these are heavier. And the end of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made their fillets for them. And the bronze that was offered was 70 talents. That is a lot of mirrors and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the altar or the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. So that finishes the chapter. Now let's return to the altar of burnt offering. Um, And so the first time we went right through these seven verses, didn't make a single comment. So now now we will, and we'll we'll do it with this in mind. With this in mind, you might even call this an outline. Um, The altar was for our good. That would be the the big idea or the thesis. Um, so, So what do I mean that the altar was good was for our good. Well, first of all, in one sense, I'm basing it on that the altar was for the good of God's people, uh, the, the people of Israel, and, and in whom, into whom we have been grafted. In other words, we are part of the people of Israel, part of the sons of Israel. Abraham, part of the true children of Abraham. So in one sense, that's what I mean. 
Um, we'll talk more about that later. But we'll have three points under this idea. One is the altar was suited for its purpose. These points are made from the text. Second, the altar was extremely noticeable. And third, the altar was for sacrifice. So first, the altar was suited for its purpose. And he made the altar a burnt offering of acacia wood. So if you're reading through Exodus, if you were reading through Exodus and uh, without, where the ch- without paying attention to the chapter breaks, about five verses earlier, you would have read this. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. So that's how that verse began, five verses earlier. So almost identical words, identical except for the of burnt offering or of incense. So two altars, two different purposes, um, two different sizes, um, each made for its own, two different kinds of construction, two different locations, um, but pay Uh, attention to the fact that there are two altars listed almost back-to-back. And the good news is that it's really clear which one is which uh, because of the name of them. So it it tells you what they are for. The altar of incense. The altar of burnt offerings. So this is the altar of burnt offerings. It's for burning offerings. So it really, if you translated it really, really, really literally um, from... From early on, it's the, it's the altar of going up because the smoke went up, the aroma went up, the product, all the products of combustion go up um, to God. And so uh, there is fire involved. And so one thing with fire involved, you might wonder is, well, what's this thing made of? It's made of wood. He made the altar a burnt offering of acacia wood, and wood burns. So the frame of the altar is wood for very good purpose, because it's built for a reason. But it's overlaid with bronze, and he overlaid it with bronze. And this is what keeps the wood from burning. So it is a, an altar that is suitable for its purpose, And five cubits was its length, and five cubits was its breadth. So just think about that. That's seven and a half feet, roughly. And three cubits, its height. So it's pretty tall, four and a half feet tall. So big, it's pretty pretty good size. And that's because everything was burned on there from grain offerings to doves, young pigeons, Lambs, goats, bulls, oxen. You can see some of those are pretty big. Um, And some of those kind of sacrifice were parts of the animal and some were the whole thing. So the altar is suited for its purpose of burning offerings. He made the horns of it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it. Not sure exactly what those did. Some think they were to help tie the animal on. 
Um, some think they were they were simply just a symbol of power, um, like like horns, like God's power. Um, at any rate, they were built into the altar. They weren't nailed on. They were made in one piece with the altar. So the altar is suited for its purpose. And he made all the utensils of the altar. So all these utensils are have to do with burning things or um, killing things. So you have pots for the ashes. Um, you have shovels to pick up the ashes. You have basins for collecting the blood um, to splatter on things and to sprinkle on things. Uh, you have forks or meat hooks, as some would say. Fire pans for collecting the coals. So the altar is made for that as well. It's suited for that purpose. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze. Network, as in the shape, looks like a net under its ledge, um, extending halfway down to keep to allow fire to go through up, up through, and then for to catch uh, parts of the animal. And he cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. So remember that the tabernacle is a portable sanctuary. So that means the altar was portable. They didn't build a new one everywhere they went. Um, It would provide for the organized practice of religion. So wherever God's presence went, Israel went. And wherever Israel went, the tabernacle went. And wherever the tabernacle went, the altar went. And so they had to carry it. Um, And it was designed to be light then, when you think about it. You have to carry it. And he made it hollow with boards. So we already saw that it was made out of wood, not solid bronze, but wood covered with bronze because that would be lighter for one reason. So it keeps it light, but when it was in place to keep it stable um, and to keep it strong so it wouldn't move around, they would fill it partway underneath it with rocks or earth because it's open on the top and on the bottom. So, it was suited for its purpose, and now it was extremely noticeable. So, the altar was big, and it was tall. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was square, with, and three cubits was its height. So, it's the biggest thing. It's the biggest furnishing Um, outside of the tabernacle, and it's bigger than the furnishings inside the tabernacle. It's big, okay? And so it's noticeable just because it's big. And secondly, at least at the beginning, it probably was shiny. We don't know if they kept shining it as it went, but it's made out of the same stuff that mirrors are made out of. Um, And so the altar probably looked Something like this. Open on the top, open on the bottom. It's got horns built in. Fire comes up through it. Um, 
And another thing, it's noticeable besides its size, because it's really big, um, it is because of its location, it was really, really, really noticeable. So in, in Exodus 38, you can't tell where it was located. Um, but in other parts of Exodus, you can tell where it's located. Um, but it is the first thing listed that goes in the courtyard here. So you know it's in the courtyard. But other scripture, other passages tell us um, where it was. So here's what the the courtyard looks like. Um, and the bronze altar almost certainly goes right there. Nobody's 100% sure, but almost all scholars believe it goes right in this specific spot. Um, this is almost a scale, um, but actually the altar's a little bit smaller in this diagram than being to scale. So it's actually slightly bigger than that, but it would be prominent when you entered because the, the red line on your left is the way into the tabernacle. The red line in the front of the tabernacle is the entrance to the tabernacle. So when you look at the tabernacle coming in, because other Israelites could come into the courtyard, not just priests, you would see first, front and center, this huge, huge altar. Um, and... It is located in this courtyard. So, so how, they, how they are pretty sure where it's located is because of the scripture references and then this, this, this thing. So this um, location of the courtyard and, and the division of the courtyard. So if you divided the courtyard east to west... Put a line down the middle, it would be even with the front of the tabernacle. You know that's right, because the scripture tells us how many how much how many cubits are around the tabernacle before you get there. Okay, so that's exactly where the midline point is. So then if you divide that west half in half. The Ark of the Covenant is exactly on the midpoint. And if you divide the east part in half, the altar would be exactly on the midpoint. So, that's where it would go, and that's where the bronze basin goes. So, the altar would have been extremely noticeable, kind of a big, imposing thing in front and center of the people as the people walked into the courtyard for worship. Um, Tremper Longman is an Old Testament commentator. He, he said this, The altar was easily accessible, unavoidable, and unmistakable. So, the last reason why it would have been those things, unavoidable, unmistakable, is because sacrifices were offered on there not once in a while but continuously repeated sacrifices. And I know that when we went through the first part in, in Exodus 27, daily sacrifices. I guess it was a little after 27, 28 or 29. Daily sacrifices, morning and evening, every day. 
besides all of the other sacrifices that were there. So the altar was for, that brings us to the last point, the, the altar was for sacrifice. That's pretty obvious, right? It's for burnt offerings. So, but, but the altar being for sacrifice is even more plain in the original language because the word altar in Hebrew that's translated altar here is based on the word to slaughter or to sacrifice. And so the original meaning was probably the place of slaughter or the place of sacrifice. By the time Exodus was written, it had just come to mean an altar of some kind, a place where things were offered up. It could be an altar of incense, same word. Um, but uh, also, in this altar, for, built for sacrifices, there were all kinds of sacrifices uh, listed in Leviticus and uh, in Exodus. Here are a few examples. Peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, whole burnt offerings. So this was a busy place. You couldn't miss what was going on. In other words, it was a constant reminder for the people, a constant reminder of sin, a constant reminder of our fallenness, a constant reminder of our need for God, a constant reminder that we needed to be reconciled to God, a constant reminder that we needed to be justified by God, a constant reminder that we're to be holy a constant reminder that God was with them, a constant reminder of what he had done for them. And the most important of those sacrifices was the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, as we talked about last time. That sacrifice where the high priest would go in once per year and atone for his own sins and the sins of his family and the sins of the people. So you might say, well, I've been here. I get all that. I understand that what, what's going on here, but I don't understand why you would say that, that the, the altar was for our good. I mean, we're not under the altar anymore, are we? Um, I'm not sure if any of that helps us today. Well, as we talked about last time, sacrifices point to the atonement, point to Christ, and especially the atonement sacrifice. And, and atonement is a covering for our sin. It is an appeasing thing of our sin. It makes us acceptable to God. It reconciles to God. And so when we think about that, that happens with us through something, through Christ, through Christ's blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away sin, but the sacrifices point to Christ. And the altar actually points to the cross. So, what would change in the meaning and our understanding if we put this in there? The cross was for our good. And the cross was suited for its purpose. Well, 
for the Romans, a cross was suited for its purpose. It was a, it was a effective, I don't want to say efficient, but effective means of execution. It was painful. It was brutal. It was a deterrent. Um, the cross was like like the like the altar. It was portable. They used it over and over and over and over and over again. But that's what not not really what I mean here. That the cross is that. No, the cross is a suitable way to pay for our sins. I'm just going to read this passage in Philippians, one of my favorite passages, uh, talking about Christ's sacrifice. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a cursed death. So because of that, God has highly exalted him. So the Romans crucified people so that they would be noticed. The cross was extremely noticeable. They they would put put the people near the city, near a road, on a hill, if they could, um, where people could get close to them, though. And a person was, when, when a person was crucified, it was a spectacle. Well, Jesus' crucifixion has been more noticeable than that. It is, really the most noticeable event in human history. Jesus said this, when, I, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing from my own authority, but I speak, but speak just as the Father taught me. Went on to say this a few chapters later, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus' cross had not only more noticeable than any event in human history, but a bigger effect than any event in human history. It's a big thing. It's an imposing thing. It's, it's front and center and it is in the direct line of sight with our access to God, just like the altar was in the tabernacle. So I think, I think you could say, like Longman does, and just move that to the cross. It's, it's easily accessible. It's accessible. God makes it a free gift by faith in Christ Jesus. Unavoidable, unmistakable, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Romans used the cross for execution. Jesus turned the Roman cross into a place of sacrifice. So you might say, 
Well, I get all that. I understand all that, but I've received Christ as my Savior. He's forgiven my sins. And I don't particularly care to think about the cross anymore. Because it's pretty brutal, right? I, I saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I did, and, it, and it, was, it was too hard to watch. It was too, too brutal to watch them use all the other instruments that go along with cru- crucifixion. So, why is the altar good news for me? Why is the cross good news for me? And what are we supposed to do with the cross today? Well, keep it front and center. Keep it extremely noticeable. Not talking about putting a, you know, a huge cross everywhere like we, we used to have one in here. We took it down. But, but to think about it more this way, like Paul did when he wrote this. I have decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Keeping it right in front of you all the time. Keeping right in front of you our sin and the price. Our need for God. Our need for reconciliation. Our need to become more holy. And most of all, what Christ has done to pay for that and how he loves us. So, it's not a thing to only look back on. It's a thing to keep in front of us all the time. Again, not a physical image of a cross. Not that there's anything wrong with a physical image of a cross. But I'm going to close. Here's one that you haven't thought about, probably. The cross is... Keeping the cross in that mind is the key to happiness. The key to happiness. I think this is really good. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm going to close from it. This is from John Frame's Doctrine of the Christian Life. How many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? How are you going to live and die happily? Three things. One, the greatness of my sin and misery. It's important to remember that. Two, this is what it takes to be happy. How I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. So that's what we see in the cross. That's why. The cross was for our good, for now and forever. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll have our final hymn. Father, we thank you for your gift, your sacrifice of your Son, for our sins, for the cross. And so we... As people of your church, we pray that we would always remember those things, the cross of Christ, what it meant for him to sacrifice for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.